Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, hello. It's Cindy on Basic Folk. We have honest conversations with folk musicians. And we're on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Hey, thanks for checking out the pod today. So nice to have you. The Brother Brothers are rooted in sibling harmony provided by twin brothers Adam and David Moss. Adam Moss would prefer it if you didn't get really weird about twin stuff. He says, we sometimes find being twins a barrier to conversing and getting to know people quickly. It's an easy thing for people to fixate on. Truthfully, there is plenty to discuss with Adam, who plays several instruments, but started on the violin. His focus was on classical, but he studied klezmer and sometimes incorporates it into his music. Adam talks about what it means to include his Jewish heritage into his songs. While attending the University of Illinois, Adam and David started to realize that the classical world was not for them. Adam joined a bluegrass band and eventually moved to Austin, Texas to be closer to the community that surrounded the Kerrville Folk Fest, which was an integral part in his development as a roots player. David also moved to Austin, but the brothers didn't start their project together until they relocated to Brooklyn. There, they discovered they were ready, musically and personally ready, to be in a band together. Originally, the Brother Brothers did not write together, but this is something that has changed on their new record, Calla Lily. Adam talks about writing with David and how that's impacted his process. The album is filled with comfort, warm sincerity, and an earnestness that comes off in a very cool and authentic way. I'd definitely describe Adam's temperament as such and get his opinion on that observation as well. So if we're not going to talk about twin stuff, the second most awkward thing you could discuss is how you are as cool as you are, and Adam pulls it off great. We'll take a listen to a song from the new album. This is The Brother Brothers On the Road Again, and then we'll get to our conversation with Adam Moss of The Brother Brothers on Basic Folk. Could it be, could it be, I'll never stand up taller? Could it be, could it be that nothing's gonna change When the muscles round my brain start to make me feel insane I think it's time to get on the road again Could it be, could it be that I am getting older? Could it be, could it be that everything is changing? I look over my body and the lines upon my face And I think it's time to get on the 
Adam Moss, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. You grew up in Peoria, Illinois, with, let's see if I know all the members of your family, your twin brother, David, who I think we're the same age. Like, I'm like five months older than you guys. Um, 82. Um, yeah. Your parents and one younger brother? Uh, Our parents, we have an older brother and a younger sister. Oh, okay. Cool. A complete family. Yeah, Um, totally. So your mom, uh, I was like scanning through your Facebook and I discovered a little bit about your mom and I definitely want to hear more about her. She was in the original cast of Godspell in Chicago. Yes. And she was also Tina Tova in The Magic Door, which was like a local kid show in Chicago that ran from the 60s to like 82, and she won an Emmy. So that's how I found it. It's because you posted a picture of her winning an Emmy um, (laughs) or holding her Emmy. And it seems like all that exciting stuff happened before you guys were born. But what did you know of her acting history and like where would it appear in in your upbringing? Um, Well, she used to talk about it all the time. And we listened to a lot of uh, sound uh, show tunes and all that when we were growing up. Um, and, uh, you do you know, know all the lyrics to day by day? No, I don't, but she does. <laughs> yeah, she would sing it all the time does. and she would always play that piece on the recorder. Um, she had to learn how to play the recorder for one of the tunes. So she used to always play that. And, uh, you know, she would just tell stories mostly. Well, she was, she didn't, uh, I, she didn't do anything scandalous or there weren't very many scandalous stories or like the kind of juicy gossip you want from somebody who was in the show business. But <laughs> yeah, she was very musical and very musically oriented. So that definitely encouraged us for sure. Was she, was she like a theatrical mom to you guys? Like I'm trying to think like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't describe her as a incredibly theatrical person in her normal days, but she could definitely turn it on if she felt like it. Um, and she always sang in the, in the temple choir. Um, and she was in a couple plays. I, there's, there's one, we grew up in Peoria, Illinois, which is very small town, small town. Mm. And my, we, we were auditioning in in the local Peoria version of, uh, Peter Pan when we were younger. And, uh, she took us to the audition and obviously we got the twins for the lost boys, um, that we were shooing for that. Um, (laughs) and I remember she was like, oh, screw it, I'll, I'll audition. And like, she was kind of the only one there who like auditioned. Uh, she was the only one with like real, uh, like professional New York and Chicago experience. And she auditioned for Peter Pan. And I remember she sang uh, Stars from Les Mis and everybody in the place was crying after she finished it. Oh my gosh. And, and then, then the director was like, sorry, I already promised the, I already promised the Peter Pan part to a friend of mine. And I was like, oh, man, we're in, we're in Peoria. There's a, well, there's a scandal right there for you. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, actually, here's the scandal is that the show never made it to stage because to get Peter Pan to fly, they, when they were rigging up the flying system, um, they realized that it was too dangerous, so they had to tear down the theater and rebuild it. So the, the plane theater. never happened. Yeah, the Jeez. plane never happened. Oh, oh, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. 
In um in looking up the magic door, I know that you have never actually seen the magic door, but you've True. seen some YouTube clips, you know, because it's like before it was local, a local children's show before there were like home videos or anything. But um, right. this is a really interesting show. It's made to appeal to all kids age five to nine, but specifically was a Jewish educational series. So I watched a clip where they actually like taught some words in Hebrew, and you just said that your mom sang in choir at Temple. Um, but for your family, what did being Jewish look like? Oh, it was... Uh, I don't really have a lot of context for other other Jewish lifestyles. I only lived my own childhood. But to me, it was like a very Midwestern, regular old reform Jewish upbringing. We went to synagogue. When we were kids, we went to synagogue what we called the temple. We went to temple every, basically every Friday. We were, you know, went to Sunday school. We did all of the things. We were pretty heavily involved in the Jewish community of Peoria, Illinois, but it was very like non, Reform Judaism is very like not super religious. It's kind of like a, in a sense of pick and choose. Um, it, it's, it's, an, it's an assimilated version of, of Judaism. So, Hmm. Um, I didn't, you know, speak Hebrew fluently. I didn't know all of the prayers, but I, you know, had a bar mitzvah and I went on birthright and was part of the youth group and all that stuff. And so, yeah, it was, it was actually for a town like Peoria, Illinois, it was a nice outlet because it was kind of, um, it was a entrance into a bigger community outside of Peoria. Um, and we got to experience, you know, um, other, other types of thinking other than the small town Peoria thinking. Hmm. Although, you know, Peoria is not that small of a town and not that backwards, but, you know. I mean, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I want a little bit, uh, know a little bit more about that. Like, you have studied klezmer and incorporate that kind of um, sound into your music here and there. What does it mean mm -hmm. for you to include your Jewish heritage into your songs? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I'm gonna. I, I wish I had a. I wish I could answer you perfectly, but um, I, I, being Jewish and being a representation of of Jewish history and of Jewish people is um, pretty important throughout my my story of my entire life. And klezmer music is always something that I've wanted to do, and it's um, one of the reasons I moved to New York City in the first place was to actually learn how to do it. And there I got involved pretty heavily with the, the Jewish music scene, which is very, you know, um, it's, it's weird because it's incredibly traditional in the sense that like the music is old and the, the references are all from, you know, pre-war or like pre, basically pre-war culture. Um, and then it's also an attempt to take that and a lot of, um, a lot of stories and a lot of sounds and a lot of cooking and a lot of language that isn't hasn't been preserved very well it's an attempt to bring that into our modern age and it was you know revived in the folk in the folk revival in the 60s 70s and 80s a bit um and now it's you know it's got its own little life and i think it's it's super um super important to to my identity and really I also think it's super important to the identity of Judaism to have a non-orthodox Yiddishist 
I mean, it, 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 it's a politics as well. And it's a, and it's a lifestyle as well. And it's a sound. And I, I, I'm trying mm. to, to carry on the sound as authentically as possible, marrying it to the modern world. Cool. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was a little rambling, but. No, I loved it. Um, so you and David would sing together while listening to a whole bunch of different groups that your dad listened to that also had incredible harmonies like the Kingston Trios, Everly Brothers, Beach Boys, and the Beatles. Specifically, I read that you would sing in your dad's car, which sounds fun. Um, <laughs> then you also joined the choir in elementary school where David was an alto and you were a soprano, which is cute. And you sang in high school choir. So how did it first feel to sing with David? And what was like the evolution like of your singing connection as you learned more about how to actually sing? Um, that's a that's a pretty good question. I think, um, you know, we we're identical twins. So we grew up doing everything together in the same room. So when we were singing... We were just, I mean, it was the same as us, like, talking to each other. It was singing with each other. And so, you know, and anything we learned as far as singing, we were probably learning it together. Or if somebody learned something new, the other we, we would show the other one immediately, and then that would be our shared knowledge. So it was pretty, it was, I can't stress how organic it was. I wish there was some, like, story of learning or of, of, um, yeah, teaching each other something, but it was just, we all just kind of, we just kind of did it. And we could, we could just mm. kind of do it. You guys do have similar voices in your singing and your speaking voices. Um, can you talk about how someone might be able to tell the two of your voices apart and what you like about the other's voices, each other's voices? Wow. Um, <clears throat> well, I don't really know how to tell our voices apart except for just getting to know us. Um, David, David listens to, and David is more of a, um, general pop music. I, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I would say that David inhales music and digests a lot more music than I do, which isn't fair actually, but he, he digests it and, uh, of a broader, a broader musical spectrum. You know, he's singing a lot more Stevie Wonder and Billy Joel and, um, I don't know, he's all, he's all into like old LPs and Motown and the Miami Sound and all kinds of things. He's shown that to me and I was very much into like the bluegrass and country world once I started my professional career. So, and I showed that world to him. So that's where we come from our music. And that's how our musics blend. So he's got more of a sensitive songwriter voice and I have more of a country bluegrass voice, but they still sound pretty damn similar. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like you personally can get like pretty uncomfortable with people's reaction to you and David being identical twins. And I know this from personal experience because... I didn't know you had a twin brother, and then you came up to me at Maya Dimitri's party, and you're like, Cindy, I have a twin brother, because I think you'll make a big deal out of it, and it's not a big deal. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> okay, cool. Um, 
But there's that. And then I, I've heard you in interviews talk about that. Like one time you said we sometimes find being twins as a barrier to like conversation and getting to know people quickly. It's an easy thing for people to fixate on. And you and David are best friends, but you're separable, you know. Um, so how do you feel about being a twin versus how other non-twin people feel about you being a twin? Well, I don't really know how to answer that question because my only context is of being a twin. But I would say that... Um, but once... you've experienced other people who aren't twins, like fixating on that. You oh, know? yeah. Well, it's it's always nicer when the shock dies down, you know, because, I mean, I can respect people's need to, like, not know something. And being a twin is, you know, weird, especially when you know somebody as they're singular and then you meet their twin and they're, they look exactly the same. But um, I, I would say that on a whole, I'm going to group this kind of, this kind of interacting with humans on the same as like meeting somebody famous as like you put people on a, on a when, you, when people put famous people on a pedestal or any sort of like recognizable people, all of a sudden their actual humanity gets drained away from them. And I, honestly, I think that's what the problem with social media and really like, you know, I got, I'm, I'm going to use the word cancel culture, but that's kind of not a fair term. But like when, when people who are not famous, like a fan of somebody looks at somebody who is an icon, they don't realize that those people have lives, have families, are just trying to have dinner. They're not there for them. So if you can just interact with people for their individual humanity, then, you know, you're going to, it's, it's a much better interaction than if you're fixating on something, your perception of who they are. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Your focus was on classical music through high school and into college. You have a music degree from the University of Illinois. Um, and then you started to realize that the classical world was not for you. Um, you and David started a gypsy jazz band. You joined a bluegrass band. Um, can you talk about what it felt like for you to discover this about yourself when it came to classical music and your experience in finding other types of music to play? Yeah, um, I would say that my upbringing in Peoria, Illinois, and the messages that I was um, that I was given when I was younger, um, classical music. Like I played the violin, and that's what I played. And if you play violin, you play classical music. And it took me a while to break out of that very closed mindset. And you know, the the college classical music training didn't slowly broke me out of that. But I was really even in, at the at the end of high school. Through college, I was really into jazz. And to a classical musician, jazz is something that you don't touch. Jazz is a whole other world of music. And so I had to come to that on my own. I took a jazz piano class in college, and that kind of opened up the whole situation. But, mm. um, yeah, I think I think it was just... What was the original question? What was it like for you to discover that oh, classical yeah. music wasn't for you? Yeah, so basically, I would say that it's not as much the classical music isn't for me. It's more 
and I think I can speak for David on this one too. It's more that we didn't know how much jazz was for us because if we would have known, I think we would have been insisting on playing it in high school and really loving it and getting into it a lot faster. Hmm. And then, you know, that would have led us possibly, if we would have even known about it, led us to the Berkeley School of Music possibly, or, you know, NEC has the Contemporary Improvisation Program. But we did we just didn't know about these things. And we hadn't hmm. been exposed to them. So you joined a bluegrass band, but um, I read that you joined it reluctantly. Well, um, I was really into Stefan Grappelli and his playing. So when who is that? When I joined, huh? Who that's is the that? guy who plays. That's the that's the guy who plays violin with Django Reinhardt and all those oh, old okay. famous recordings. I was really into that style, um, and so I, wait, wait a second. Is that okay? So is that like a gypsy jazz style? It's like yeah, is it's it? like a French. French minouche. It's called minouche. Minouche. Um, yeah. Because I was looking, I was trying to think of another term for gypsy jazz band because I've been told that gypsy true. is a derogatory term. It's true. So the the non the the non derogatory uses we call it minouche, like minouche guitar. M a n o u c h e. Yeah. Cool. But it's right. it's a it's kind of like a French style. It was developed, like the Django Reinhardt was developed in France, I think, pretty sure. And then it spread like wildfire because it's awesome. But um, yeah, so I was really into that. And then the local bluegrass band wanted me to play. And I was like, oh, I can try since I know how to improvise now a little bit. And so I, and the rest was history. I got really into it. Yeah, you tried it and got really into it. You joined the band. You like followed the band to Austin. Yeah. Um, What was it about playing bluegrass that first really grabbed you? Um, I think the same things that, that grab, once I, once I understood, that's the other poison of, of the classical music training was that it doesn't respect, didn't respect the artistry that was secular, not secular. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Colloquial music. Is that the right term? Sounds good. Yeah. Like non-classical music. Um, there's a, there's a word that I'm, that's slipped my brain right now. Um, but yeah, so it didn't respect the artistry as much and the technique and the practicing and the, yeah, and the, uh, the dedication to those, to those types of music. And so when I started getting into bluegrass music, I was like, oh, I play classical music. This is gonna be easy. And then I realized how, how difficult and how advanced it was, how incredible it was. And the oh, rest so was kind of like- history. In the classical world, like bluegrass is kind of like a lowbrow, exactly form of but, music. But like, I'm sure a lot of really incredible violin players think that they'd be able if they if they wanted to do it, they'd be able to nail bluegrass music. But the truth is that they'd have to get down and dirty with it. They'd have to like learn how to groove. They'd have to learn all of the different language mm. and all of the different styles of playing, and it would blow their minds. It's like would, a jazz have, drummer trying to be a metal drummer. Uh, I would say that would be an easier transition than a classical percussionist trying to be a metal drummer. Yeah. But a classical Agreed. percussionist in the side of their mind was probably like, oh, I can do that so easy. But they wouldn't <laughs> have a good pocket. They wouldn't have a good groove. Because you learn how to do things with classical music. You learn how to play classical music, but you don't learn, you don't learn pocket. Hmm. So... 
You've also really taken to the community that surrounds the type of music the Brother Brothers perform. You've thrived in communities in Austin, New York, Chicago, Boston. What do you like about being in a community, and where did your sense of community stem from originally? Wow, good question. Um, I would say that we are just community-oriented people, David and I, so it's just kind of a a logical conclusion. Um, I think music is um, very community-oriented. Can't help it can't help but be because you have to you have I mean you know the music that we're drawn to is music that gets played around a campfire so you know that's usually a community activity that's something you do with your friends so um I'd say I'd say the biggest eye-opener was when when I went down when I was thinking about moving to Austin with this bluegrass band we went to the Kerrville Folk Festival because the leader of the band um had been going there for years and years. And the Kerala Folk Festival is one of the oldest music festivals, and it used to be the only music festival in Texas. So basically every weirdo in Texas would come to this 18-day festival and basically live there. So the community was so strong, and it's the kind of place that if you're a musician, it doesn't matter if you're the worst guitar player, the worst songwriter in the world, if you start playing a song, everybody stops talking and they listen to you whoever's around. So you go to a campsite and they're cooking up dinner and then you start playing music. Nobody's going to talk while you're playing. Although you'll get yelled at. Everybody's playing music. Everybody's heard. Everybody is supporting each other in music. And I thought mm-hmm. it was the most beautiful place I'd ever been. And um, we've been going there now for 15 or 16 years. It's one of our favorite places in the entire world. And uh, yeah, it's kind of breaking our hearts that, that hasn't been able to go because of COVID because it's kind of one of the things that we rely on to keep us happy year after year. Yeah. Yeah, you and David were touring together all the time, um, which is difficult to keep community when you're on the road all the time. And now with the pandemic, um, you're both out of New York at this point. How have you been able to keep connected to your community, like when you were touring and now that you're not touring? Um, well, when we're touring, um, a lot of other people in our community are touring. So it was always fun to run into people. And then, you know, we'd come to a town where we knew somebody. We get to see old friends more than a lot of people because wherever you move, we're probably going to come by there. So that's a nice thing about touring is that you get to see people that don't live in your town. Um, that said, um, with with COVID and whatnot, uh, I think it's been really hard. Um, I think we're all, you know, we're all isolated from our communities, even those people that live in the same town. Um, so, you know, making dates to see each other on Zoom and have a cocktail, watch a movie. I got an Oculus um, Quest, a VR machine, so I can play mini golf with my folks and with some other friends that have VR, which is fun. Just oh, doing cool. however we can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we're all struggling and it's a common story. And I definitely am not good with technology. So I'm probably not the most inventive person on that. Mm. But, you know, it's been really hard. We've been super isolated and bored mm. and wondering how we're going to make it through and constantly doubting ourselves, seeing everybody posting on social media for some reason, having fun. Because nobody <laughs> shares their shares their trauma on social media unless it's super traumatic. So, 
Yeah. You and David lived together in Austin um, when you moved down there, but you were playing in different projects, and it seems like somehow you both kind of knew that you needed more time apart to kind of like grow up before you formed a new project together. How did you actually like know that you would need that time? Oh, I think it was just unspoken. I don't know that we even discussed it. Like more intuitive yeah, than anything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, you would eventually get the Brother Brothers together when you were in Brooklyn, which was 2015. Um, can you compare playing and being around each other before that happened and then like after that formation? Like where did you, where did you see each other grow um, as musicians and as like band bandmates? Well, I think we've always been growing. I mean, I think there's a video online of me playing with David because he was trying to do a solo thing um, in like 2013 or 2014. And, um, you know, we've been kind of toying. I had been toying with the idea. I just never had the, I just never had the confidence to actually like book a gig or do the, make the website or do the thing. And then, um, I don't know, one day I just kind of woke up and decided to do it. Um, it was, it was, you know, followed by a followed it, that decision followed a very depressing year of not having enough work and being super broke. I decided the only way that, that this is going to work out is if I do it myself. And so I just kind of woke up one morning and started doing it. And, um, yeah, then we had to fight through it. We had to like figure out how to work together without killing each other. And we did for the was most part. Was it hard? Um, yeah, it was a little, yeah, it was hard. I mean, working with your brother on really anything and like trying to share a vision caused a lot of, a lot of, you know, compromise. And, and we also had to like connect our vision because we both had different visions of how we wanted to sound. Hmm. So we had, that had to come together. Yeah. You know, it's like when you, when you start a new job, it takes like exactly at least eight months to be like, all right, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And you know what your boss wants and you know what the world wants and you know how to, you have your system organized and in place. Yeah, it was tough. Was there anything surprising to you about working with David that like you hadn't expected? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that the, the, I wouldn't say it was surprising, but it was relieving how easy how nice it was to like really like get a good one, get a good harmony or get a good song <laughs> and just like nail it. It feels really good to sing with him because usually when I sing with other people, our voices don't lock up like they do with him. So mm, yeah, it's really nice. That yeah, part, that part makes it all worth it. It's got to be unlike singing with anyone else. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. How does that like... Do you like? Do you ever get that like feeling when you're singing with someone else, where you're like, "This is the David feeling"? Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember there was a. Are you familiar with Celia Woodsmith? Somehow, yes. She's in. She's the lead singer of Della May. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my Boston. god, yeah, great singer. Oh. Great singer. <laughs> we we became friends when I was living in Boston, and we would sing songs together. And every once, she's like, she's a master. So it's like, but that was like. She's one of my favorite people to sing with of all. Uh, Some great, people are just choice. really good at singing harmony. 
Um, Sarah DeRose is really, really good at singing harmony. Mm. As good of a lead singer as she is, she's also very good at singing harmony. And yes, an absolute pleasure awesome. to sing with. So some people just have that thing. But yeah. David and I definitely, it, it, it locks in nice. I would also recommend, I don't know if you've ever sang with Rose Polanzani, but she's a great person you to know, sing with. I have sang with Rose Polanzani, but all only with a ton of other people. So Ugh. I've never just the two of us. I would love to do that yeah. someday. Yeah. All right, great. I love singing with Anna Eggie too. She's oh, got yeah. A, yeah. She's God. she's fun to harmonize with. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. This is a fun part of the interview where we just <laughs> talk about good harmonizers. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know if I have my inf- information correct or not because I saw it in so many places where both you and David are like, we don't write together, we don't write together. But it seems like those were kind of older pieces. Yeah. And now we write together now. You we figured are. it out. Okay, great. Um, yeah. I found this cool quote. I think it's from you. Since we're older now, we approach the songs with a certain amount of respect. So whoever wrote the song has the vision. How do you think that this new collaborative process has changed your writing? Well, that vision kind of gets flushed out in the collaborative writing process. So usually, um, usually there's not as much to talk about, but that's still an issue. Um, you know, we both have strong opinions. And so whoever has the stronger opinion usually um, wins out. Mm. But I don't know. We're getting better. We're getting better at, at working that stuff out. Have you ever have you ever used like a numbering system of like how strongly you feel about a thing? If you're like, David, I'm like a 10 out of 10 on this. Yeah, we definitely have. Yeah, I've actually that's yeah. more of a that's more of a statement of of a resolve than like than like an actual system that we use to <laughs> yeah um okay a couple of quotes from both you and david about like the way that you relate to each other you said you said there are some things that make it way easier and some things that make it way harder the arguments fizzle a lot faster and we don't hold grudges but we also probably argue a lot more and then david says and the arguments escalate quickly and we probably expect a lot more out of each other as well, which I was trying to think of like, I just, I was trying to think of like, like what I wanted to know more about that. And I wondered like, how do you think having such a close relationship like that with your brother, which I, it seems like you both really understand how you relate to each other. Like how has that impacted your ability to be close to others or how does that make you a better friend? Um. You know, I just, I've been having my horoscope read um, regularly because my girlfriend is really into astrology right now. Um, that's her pandemic, her pandemic uh, work is, is learning how to do that stuff. And uh, one of the things that keeps coming up is that um, we're incredibly intuitive. And I think that's, I think I can relate with that. I, I think of myself as when I meet people, I've, I feel like I always have a good read on them more than some, like, I don't usually, I don't know. This is all my perception too, but um, <laughs> I feel like I'm incredibly intuitive. And so I also feel that David is incredibly intuitive. So the combination of us being incredibly intuitive makes our relationship, um, you know, makes a lot of things become unsaid. And I feel like, I feel the same way with a lot of people 
it's just that their intuition of me doesn't line up as like mine and David's does. And of course, human, of course, we don't have as much shared experience with other people too. But I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like I approach most relationships with a great sense of understanding and intuition. So I treat people very similarly to how I treat my brother. Hey everybody, it's Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapists. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. Very convenient. You start communicating in under 48 hours. Professional counseling done securely online. It is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT plus matters, grief, self-esteem. Anything that you share is confidential and you can start living a happier life today by getting 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash songwriter. You can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash songwriter. Bye. The new album. By the time this posts, the album will have been out for a couple of weeks. Calla Lily. It's beautiful. Sweet. Um, the song On the Road Again. You wrote that after some really intense touring, and you were quite road-weary. How do you feel about that song now, like after being off the road for a year versus like when you wrote it? It's pretty incredible how that song flipped meanings because it was a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, but also, like, we're, we love being on the road, and, like, we wouldn't have stopped. Like, we, were, we needed a break, but, like, we wouldn't have stopped. We're ready to, we're ready to keep going because we want to do this. We want to like play music for people. Uh, so I, I think that the song, I, I mean, I, David wrote it completely and I identified with it so deeply because it was so honest and so tongue in cheek at the same time. Hmm. I really love that song. It's like the perfect brother, brother song. Yeah. I dig it a lot. Yeah. The album is filled with comfort warm sincerity and an earnestness that comes off in a very like cool and authentic way which is maybe how I describe your personalities I don't know David very well um like at all but I would assume you guys are pretty similar how do you compare your temperament to the type of music you make um wow I would say I would say that the albums come out as the people that we wish we were in a crowd and I think our live shows probably are more who we really are, you know, mm -hmm. with all of our imperfections and, you know, dumb comments in between songs and all that stuff and insecurities on stage or whatever. But, um, I think it's a pretty accurate portrayal of who we are, at least artistically. Yeah. So your, al that... your albums are like your Instagram feeds. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Rethink everything. Um, I read the interview you did with Red Line Roots, um, where it seems like you, were, you guys are talking about something, and then you brought up, 
think he he said, you know, music, nobody wants to pay for music. Like everyone wants music to be free. And you interrupted him and you were like, it does actually cost things. Like we pay when consuming music because we're constantly being advertised to. What are your feelings about the relationship between musicians and sponsorships and how do you work to keep your music sincere if you have to like turn to that i mean that's that's an that's a challenge totally um and some people succumb to to i mean like i've heard of plenty of people that are just literally writing music every day for spotify they just create a band create spotify try to get playlisted you know, this is, it's a whole new music. It's a whole new business world. The music's the same. The business is different. And there are people that are good at manipulating the business. And there are people who are good at writing music. And sometimes those two inter, intertwine. And sometimes people that are good at one or the other work together. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as that question goes and my interruption, I feel like music doesn't cost the, the music itself doesn't cost anything. The production and the dissemination of it um, these days also doesn't really cost anything. But to be able to record it and to have the sounds that you want costs a lot of money. And so the creation costs a lot of money. And I also know that people can't live without it. They would give their life savings to have a song if they didn't have access to it. They would give everything to just hear a song. The fact is, though, that there's an abundance of music and it's been completely devalued. And so nobody has to pay for it. So why would they? If you didn't have to pay for toilet paper, there was an abundance of toilet paper. Why would anybody go to the store and buy it? It's just that, you know, somebody has devalued it. The Internet has devalued it and um, consumerism and technology has devalued it. That's all. Hmm. I wanted to hear more about your five-string violin. Okay. A violin normally has four strings. Mm -hmm. So why does it? Ha where did you get this violin? Why does it have five strings, and why why did you want five strings? Well, some of my favorite fiddle players have five strings violins, and um, there's a few people who make the five-string violins that most of my favorite fiddle players make. Um, but this guy, John Silikowski, um, it made mine. Um, and Brittany Haas plays one. Uh, Casey Dreesen plays one. Michael Cleveland plays one. Um, I forget who All else great does. fiddlers. All, my, three of my favorite fiddle players of all time. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of like, I wanted to check that out. And um, then when the Brother Brothers started, um, it was nice to have some lower tones than just a the high violin, so that fifth strings really come in handy. And I also uh, majored in the viola in college. So that fifth string is a C string like the viola. So it's kind of a combination of um, a lot of what I know how to play, you could say. And it's cool to have. It's nice for accompanying yourself. Um, yeah. Here we go, the lightning round. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Come As You Are. The Nirvana song? song or the church yeah. song? Oh, uh, the Nirvana song for sure. And the second song was Blackbird. 
What is your karaoke song? Oh, um, probably something by Oasis. Dogs or cats or something else? Uh, dogs. Does David have the dog? Yeah, he just got a dog. Um, we're also allergic to cats, so. No, that's sad. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. What is your coffee order? Iced coffee, black. No lid. Mmm, nice. Get the ice right in your face. That's right. (laughs) Who is your first celebrity crush? Uh, Probably the girl from uh, My Girl. Oh, Anna Klumsky? Anna Klumsky. I don't know. I probably had one before that. I also remember I had a crush on the girl from uh, um, uh, Rookie of the Year. Remember the one where the kid breaks his shoulder and has a fastball? Yeah. I don't think I ever watched that, but I'll watch it tonight on Disney+. <laughs> Plus. Uh, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Whoa. Um, the nicest musician I've ever met. Wow. That is a, I've met a lot of really nice musicians. Looking for future guests for Basic Folk, and I only want to talk to nice people. Jason Cipher. He plays Jason bass Cypher. for he plays bass for Rhiannon Giddens. Oh, okay, cool. One of the nicest guys in the world. Great bass player too. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Uh, Sergeant. Well, the first CD I bought with my own money was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But I bought a tape. I'm sure I bought a tape. I think my brother bought Vanilla Ice. Wow. Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> Not my proudest moment. The only two albums you need, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I also remember going into Best Buy and being like, oh, I like Pink Floyd, but I don't want to get the, the regular album. So I just picked one at random. And I picked Piper at the Gates of Dawn, one of the one of the greatest Pink Floyd albums, you know, their first album. It's so cool. And I'm so glad that I got turned on to that. I got really lucky picking a good one. Wow. Yeah. First concert. Um, first concert I went to on my own was Fiona Apple when I was like 16 years old. Fiona Apple? Yeah. Wow. Great one. Yeah, I feel pretty cool about that too. (laughs) I also went to a Bob Dylan concert when I was young. Went to Bloomington, Illinois to watch Bob Dylan and Brian Setzer Orchestra was opening for him. And that was right after the Gap ad when swing was huge. And so the crowd was split. So there was all these people in this huge auditorium, like Bob Dylan auditorium. Mm-hmm. Um, there was all these people trying to swing dance and it was so stupid. But I liked Brian Setzer and I liked uh, Bob Dylan, so I got the best of both worlds. <laughs> it was a great concert. All right, flying or invisibility? Uh, wow. I don't know that I can choose. I, wow. I'll, I'll okay. say flying, it's the first one. Okay. It came to mind, but it'd be awesome to be invisible, too. Last question. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Wow. I've been to some pretty freaking beautiful places. Um, I'm going to have to say uh, I'm in Santa Barbara right now, and this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Agreed. But also, uh, like, Jasper National Park in Canada... Absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. 
We did the drive from, from Seattle to um, Grand Prairie, Alberta. Hmm. And it just blew our minds. Just wow. mind blowing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's so much beauty on this earth. I don't know that I could pick one. It's unfair to all of the other places. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that one. With us. Also, Iceland. Iceland's incredible. All right. That's it. That's the lightning round. Okay. We've finished the interview. I would like to encourage people to listen to the entirety of the album. There are some out. Al- there's some songs that get um, a lot of press and focus from you know outlets, but if you listen to our album backwards, um, it's just as good. Just saying. How could one do that? Put it on a turntable and put it in the other or make direction. A, or uh, if you're doing it on Spotify, for example, you just. Make a playlist and go ten nine eight seven six five. Oh, you, you know. mean like if you listen to it in reverse order? Yeah, exactly. I thought you actually were talking about like playing it backwards. Oh yeah, that would be cool too. I haven't done that. <laughs> play it, play it along with the Wizard of Oz. On exactly. The third lion roar, hit play. <laughs> That's it. Cool. Well, thanks, well, cool. Adam. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for the interview. Basic Folk This Week was produced by human angel person Laura McCarthy. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. So glad that you checked out the podcast today. And if you liked it, please share it with a friend who you think would also enjoy. You can find Basic Folk wherever you got this podcast or at my website, cindyhouse.net. We'll talk to you next time you're here. Okay, bye. Bye.